The Academy Award nominations have been announced, and you know what that means. That's right. An industry spiraling into irrelevance will attempt to appease a news media spiraling into irrelevance by celebrating irrelevant films that have already been forgotten by anyone who is not irrelevant, because, of course, only irrelevant never forgets. But it also means something else. It means it's time for The Andrew Clavin Show to nominate the best films that were not made in 2016 or ever. Yes, these are movies that were never filmed, shown, or even conceived of in Hollywood, and yet managed to garner an audience only slightly smaller than Oscar nominees Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea put together, which would be Manchester by the Sea under the Moonlight, which no one saw either. First up for best never-made film is EPA DOA, an environmental thriller in which an insane EPA bureaucrat races to save California's endangered fish by diverting water from California's endangered human beings. The evil environmentalist is finally defeated by a ragtag band of outcasts and minorities which is to say conservatives working in the movie business, who get together to write a script about the evil of man-made climate change, then roll the script up in a cylinder and use it to beat the EPA bureaucrat into unconsciousness. Another nominee for Best Unmade Film is the journalism saga All the Previous President's Men. Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman play a 127-year-old reporter and his deceased sidekick, who set out to write a history of the Obama administration, only to find themselves swept up into a world of scandal, conspiracy, and lies, which turns out to actually be the history of the Obama administration. In one thrilling scene, Redford goes into a parking garage to meet a high-level source, only to realize he's forgotten where he parked his car, only to realize he's not there to get his car and can't remember why he is there, or how to get home, or who he is. Redford, who also directed the film, says the story blows the lid off something that has a lid, but he's forgotten what. And our final nominee for Best Unmade Film is the elaborate heist flick, Dude, Where's My Useless Federal Job? Joaquin Phoenix brings his sparkling personality and warm-hearted comedy skills to the part of Less Is More, a federal bureaucrat tragically put out of work by Trump administration cutbacks on freeloaders who live off the taxpayers. Unable to find a job because he has no skills, because he's never done anything useful, because he was a federal bureaucrat, Ismore plans a brilliant jewel heist, only to realize he can't pull it off, because he has no skills, because he's never done anything useful, because he was a federal bureaucrat. Ismore finally hits on the brilliant idea of just passing a regulation, demanding that the jewels be given to him because, like, civil rights or something. Hilarity ensues. Well, those are our nominees for Best Non-Existent Movies. I look forward to the actual award ceremony, which will also not exist and will therefore be more entertaining than the Oscars. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing Oh, hurrah, hooray Oh, hooray, hooray 
Wow, what an exciting day. Our first animated opening. And thank you to Jonathan Hay for doing that under fire, live. That was animated live. Under fire. He was drawing those things as I was speaking. It was amazing. <laughs> it's also it's also mailbag day, so we will be answering. Hey, we'll be answering your questions. If you subscribe to thedailywire.com, you can ask questions. They will, will give you absolutely correct answers that will absolutely change your life. And you can send they can send in questions live, right, while I'm yeah. talking. Yep, yeah. that's in the second half of the show. First. I have to tell you, I finally, my Blue Apron food finally showed up. So three, three days. You know, there's, there's almost no point in my describing this to you because they, give, they will give you the first three meals for free. You just go on blueapron.com slash Andrew, and they will give you the first meals for free, no delivery charge, nothing, so you can taste them yourself. Basically, what this is, it's like having a restaurant in your home. It's like, like having restaurants, seriously, not, not the kind of restaurants my listeners go to, you know, where you know, the food is inedible, but the waitresses aren't wearing any clothes. But these... These are, these are places like nice people go to where the food is really good. What they do is they send you, like it's about 10 bucks a meal, and they send you all the ingredients you need in exactly the right proportions. And then they have they send you all the instructions. And it's easy after that. You just sit back and watch your wife make, make the meal. <laughs> but every, every now and again, you have to get up and chase her around the room. Maybe that's just in my house. I'm not sure. But if you can go on, and this is really elaborate food, really good meals. Uh, like I said, it's restaurant-level food. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping at blueapron.com slash Andrew. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't waste. Wait, blueapron.com slash Andrew. It's a better way to cook. really was terrific. I mean, I'm not not joking. It was great, great food. And we we got the first three for free, as you can, and now we're definitely going to start paying for them because it's worth it. All right. What this administration is a hoot and a half. I uh, this is really really funny. You know, I am not even sure what I'm looking at yet. I'm not. You know, everybody's got an opinion, and all the people who are uh, who are conservative or like whatever Trump does, it's it's great. And all the people who are liberal, whatever, even Trump, like he can just sneeze, and it's like, oh my God, the first president ever to stoop to the level of sneezing in front of every. So I want to I want to just like ask myself what I saw yesterday because it was so incredible. Some of this stuff, I, I seriously, I never thought I would live to see some of this stuff that's so good, and it's happening on the second day of his administration. He's doing stuff I seriously did not think I would live to see again. Let me just start with one quick personal an- anecdote, okay? This is, this is to the point, but I'll have to get back to it. When I was a young man coming up, starving writer, didn't have a dime— my brother and I got together and wrote a thriller, and the thriller, we dashed it off. I mean, I outlined it very carefully, but then the two of us sat down and dashed it off. But it won awards, and it was sold to the movies. Now, it, didn't, it wasn't a big movie sale, but it sold to someone who is has has been called the worst person in Hollywood. Okay, so that's going, that's going a ways, right, the worst person in Hollywood. We we had nothing. My brother and I had nothing. I was married. I had a kid. I was I was making zero. I had a minor job, but I was making zero money. So this money meant everything to us. And it wasn't a lot, but it meant everything to us. And we got into this negotiation with this horrible guy who kept changing the rules of the negotiation. But we had this powerhouse agent who agreed to handle it as a friend. He was a friend of mine and my wife's, and he agreed to handle the negotiation. So my brother and I sat in a room while this guy talked to the phone, on the phone to this guy. And remember, we need this money so much. We need it. And the, the, our negotiator, our agent, is talking to the guy and says, you, he says, you keep changing the rules. I've had it. And he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. And he says, and F 
you. And he slams the phone down. And I'm sitting in the room, and I turn to my brother, and my brother, it must, it must have been the reflection of me. He had turned white as a dead man. He looked like a, you know, white and green, you know, that look that dead people have. You know, this was, he had just thrown all our money away. And I look across the desk at the agent, and he's sitting there with this little smile on his face. He'll call back. Less than a minute later, the phone rings. The guy calls back and gives him everything he wants, okay? That was this agent. He was a crazy guy. He was a guy, like, if you made a bad offer, he would tap a spoon against the phone and say, you know, I've got some interference here. I thought you made such a bad offer, but you couldn't have made such a bad, you know. He would just do crazy, crazy stuff because he was a negotiator. And I wonder if that is what we're looking at because this is crazy stuff. So here's, let's start out with what actually happened, the actual facts of what Trump did yesterday. Let's, we'll play Trump announcing some of his moves. This is with regard to the construction of the Keystone Pipeline, something that's been in dispute, and it's subject to a renegotiation of terms by us. We'll see if we can get that pipeline built. A lot of jobs, 28,000 jobs, great construction jobs. We build the pipelines, we want to build the pipe. Going to put a lot of workers, a lot of steel workers back to work. We're bringing manufacturing back to the United States big league. I am, to a large extent, an environmentalist. I believe in it. But it's out of control. By the way, totally, these, these two pipelines, this is the Dakota Access Pop Pipeline and the Keystone Pipeline, these were scuttled by Obama even after the study showed they were going to be fine, there was not going to be a bad in, environmental impact. They were scuttled purely for the big Democrat donors who are obsessed with this oil thing. But just so you know, because we all do care about the environment, scuttling the pipeline doesn't mean the oil won't be drilled. It'll still be drilled because Canada can sell it to Asia. They don't have to sell to us. They will sell it to us because we need the oil. And instead of transporting it in a pipeline, which is relatively safe, they would transport it in trains, which is much, much more dangerous, a train wreck much more likely than the pipeline uh, exploding. So all this stuff, you know, it's environmental. He's now saying he's he's issuing the directive to build the wall. He's limiting immigration from terrorist heavy countries like Syria. And uh, he's got uh, the House Majority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, just uh, wrote an essay about how the House is now moving to abandon all of uh, Obama's regulations that he hyped on us, you know, piled on us in those last 60 days. They're also going to pass a law making it harder to institute these regulations so the bureaucrats are a little bit responsible to our elected officials. Okay, that's what's really happening. Here's what's happening on Capitol Hill, okay? So help me. This is real tape. I'm not making this up. Senator Jeff Merkley is questioning budget director pick Rick Mulvaney, right? This is the guy who's going to do the budget director. Here's the question he asked him. It's amazing. I have behind me two pictures that were taken at about the same time of day in 2009 and 2017. Which crowd is larger, the 2009 crowd or the 2017 crowd? (laughs) Senator, if you allow me to give the disclaimer that I'm not really sure how this ties to OMB, I'll be happy to answer your question, which was from that picture. It does appear that the crowd on the left-hand side is bigger than the crowd on the right-hand side. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> asking him about the crowd size at the inaugural. He's the budget director. And the guy says, well, there's a lot of numbers involved with budgets, you know, so that's why it's relevant. I mean, he's driving them insane, you know, because <laughs> he gets upset or he, he appears. See, this is what I'm saying. I don't know. He appears to get upset over the, them saying that his crowd was smaller than Obama's crowd. And then they all go nuts proving this. They're talking about this. And here's what Sean Spicer, who is Sean Spicer is now. Be, I'm going to have a bust of Sean Spicer put in my room. He is becoming my favorite human being in the country. This guy is just kicking butt and taking names. He goes out and he, he gets asked. This is the other obsession they have. Trump keeps saying he would have won the popular vote if there weren't all these illegal votes. Okay. So, so now they're asking him, Sean Spicer, about it. Here's his response. Does the president believe that millions voted illegally in this election? And what evidence do you have of widespread voter fraud in this election, if that's the case? The president does believe that. He has stated that before. I think he stated his concerns of voter fraud and, and people voting illegally during the campaign. And he continues to maintain that belief based on studies and evidence that people have presented to him. But exactly what evidence? I, I, well, I, you, Ryan today said there's no evidence. The National Association of Secretaries of State say that they don't agree with the president's assessment. What evidence do you have? I, 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 as I said, I think the president has believed that for a while based on studies and information he has. <laughs> and, and, and Trump is now saying, oh, we're going to have an investigation. We're going to have a major, major investigation into voter fraud, okay? Here's Brian Stelter representing the media, basically, on CNN. Here's Brian Stelter. He's upset about this. Why? Listen. Well, I want to choose my words as carefully as possible, Brooke. You know, we talked before the election about Donald Trump claiming the election would be rigged and about how that undermined the integrity of the voting system. But here we are now on President Trump's fifth day in office. The only word I can think of is crazy. This is crazy. It's crazy to believe that three to five million people voted illegally in this election. It, of course, undermines democracy, but it's crazy. Um, if you care about facts, it's just a dark day. We heard about alternative facts recently via Kellyanne Conway, and this is an alternative fact. Uh, I thought Abby was doing a good job presenting the data there, because the truth is a lot of Americans do believe there was a lot of illegal voting. Mm -hmm. This is, this is, he's threatening democracy by challenging the illegitimacy of an election. This is, this is from the media that has done nothing but challenge the illegitimacy of this election. Oh, it's the Russians. He's a Russian pawn. He's the Manchurian candidate, the Ukrainian candidate. You know, it's like, what, what on earth suddenly there? And remember, do you remember when Barack Obama was making a speech about saying, and he said he wasn't going to ensure illegal immigrants and somebody, I can't remember who it was, who shouted, you lie, remember, uh, who said, you know, you, you lie and oh, what a terrible thing to say. Now, the New York Times is seriously running headlines and they change them during the course of the day. But when the headline, when I, when I wake up in the morning, the headline on the E version of the New York Times is like, Trump sticks to lie about illegal voters. And here is their lead. Mr. Trump doubled down Wednesday on his fraudulent assertion that millions of illegal immigrants gave Hillary Clinton her 2.8 million ballot victory. And then they come out and say, you know, why is you know, Trump is such an egotist to worry about this? But it sounds like they're kind of worried about it, too. You know, so here and before we say goodbye to our friends, I just want to end the first half of the show with who is calling Trump crazy? Guess who? Guess who? It's Keith Olbermann. He's back. Hey, he's back. It's time for Donald Trump to resign as president. Admittedly, it's been an interesting couple of days, but for any patriotic American capable of adding two and two and not getting one and a half million, this is enough.
Trump has proved that not only will he lie to America about anything big or small, but that just as importantly, he will lie to himself about anything big or small. And more troubling yet, he will compel men weaker even than himself to lie on his behalf about anything big or small. And worst of all, the lies will convince some people and they will convince one person especially dangerous in particular, Donald Trump. Because what Trump does not believe cannot be true. And that way lies madness and lies every evil imaginable, including the end of this country in a literal sense, perhaps the end of civilization. Because like somebody who's strung out on drugs or somebody who's living in a complete dreamlike state caused by profound, pulsating narcissism, he will not believe that the outcome of any of his actions could be failure or disaster or even something that could be harmful to himself. I gotta say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to thedailywire.com and hear the mailbag. All your questions answered, your life changed. Come on, it's a lousy eight bucks a month. Now, by the way, just before we go on with this, Obama, before he left office, put out a regulation that both Democrat uh, officials in the states and Republican officials believe was an attempt to be a fed to a, for a, the feds to take over the election process. So all Trump is talking about is investigating whether there were illegal votes, and who knows whether he'll really do it. But but Obama was really making a move on the federal election process. All right. So so what's what's the media's solution? My favorite solution is from NYU journalism professor Jay Rosen, and yes, apparently. NYU journalism professor is a profession. You can actually get paid for doing that. Why? I have no idea. Jay Rosen says we should just stop talking. As journalists, we should shun Kellyanne Conway. Just don't talk to her. That's the way to do your job if you're a journalist. If you don't like what somebody's saying, don't interview him. So Tucker Carlson, of course, just goes after him. Ms. Jay Rosen. Uh, I think when we're talking about uh, having uh, constructive political discourse, and disagreeing with somebody, there needs to be a basic agreement on the facts. Um, and she is spreading blatant lies. Uh, she's spreading what she called alternative facts. So how can I, we actually have a conversation and disagree in a healthy way if we're not going to agree on the basic facts, like the sky is blue, for example? Well, I mean, we don't agree on the basic facts about a lot of different things. I mean, you, that's part of what discourse is. It's arguing over what the facts are. And, of course, you're not going to reach a place of agreement if you don't talk at all. And that's what you're suggesting. No talking. Shunning, as you put it. Which seems to me like a religious concept, not really a, a journalism idea. Well, uh, this administration is obviously desperate for attention, given they spent the entire weekend focusing on the petty issue of inauguration attendance. And I think they dominate headlines uh, by continuing this uh, charade of spreading alternative facts. And uh, behind the scenes, they do other things that arguably should be reported on, uh, but don't get enough attention. Um, I don't know if this is part of a larger sinister plan from the Trump administration, but it is a huge distraction. And it is quite embarrassing that the first weekend of the 45th president was spent talking about how many people came to his inauguration. See, see, the question is, who spent their time doing that? Because Trump actually spent his time essentially repealing the Obama administration. <laughs> so, so Trump was actually doing something. It's this clown who's talking about this. But he asks the big question. Is this some kind of plot? Is he doing this on purpose, driving them nuts? Or 
is there a problem? So here's Morning Joe putting forward the first theory. There's their panel on Morning Joe, and they're basically discussing the image that the press is now developing of Donald Trump. The crowd size bit and the three oh. to five million illegal bit is all hinged on the fact that Donald Trump can't stand hearing that somehow he's not a legitimate president. And that he his won team fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. can't bear to tell him the truth. And that's bad. And so he gets people going out saying things that just aren't true. Sean Spicer said oh. yesterday that it was an overwhelming victory, that Donald Trump got the most electoral votes of any Republican since Ronald Reagan. His boss Forgetting wants to hear George H.W. Bush well, wiping out Michael Dukakis. Well, well, but this is all about who, him who feeling like his, his election well, needs to be validated. Who tells him you are president of the United States. You are the president. Well, act like the president. You know, You're we, the president. We had, we had talked about how he has mm. the, what I believe to be a really, really strong, we all believe, a really, really strong foreign policy team. He doesn't have somebody close to him in the inner circle that can walk in. Right. Don't do this. So. So this is the idea, and the New York Times is selling this big time, and they say they have aides, sources in the administration who are coming and saying, look, this guy is a massive egotist. When anybody says anything that questions his popularity or his, whether he's right, or his, he explodes, and no one has the nerve to just say, but no, these are the facts, so we have to stick with them. They're just cowed by his rage, and so Sean Spicer has to go out and talk about crowd size and all this, and that's that's the problem. That's This is this kind of mad... Uh, president in the Oval Office raging about the crowd size. That's the one theory. <clears throat> I'm not there. You're not there. We don't know. That's one theory. Here's the other one. The other one comes from a Wall Street Journal op-ed by an author named Barton Swain, and he puts it very well. I'm going to read a, a small portion of this. Mr. Trump has little but contempt for the mainstream media, or at least he wants the media to think so. He realized some time ago, as many a Republican presidential candidate realized before him, that most journalists covering his campaign would interpret his pronouncements and decisions in the worst possible light. Mr. Trump decided not to play their game. Instead, he would troll them constantly, mercilessly troll them. The effect was to stop them from covering his candidacy in the usual ways with the kind of one-sided analysis guaranteed to make his Democratic opponent look superior, and instead to send them off on crazy fact-checking errands in search of intrinsically worthless data. Did thousands and thousands of Muslims celebrate the 9-11 attacks in New Jersey? Did he really oppose the Iraq war? And when? Is The Art of the Deal really the best-selling business book of all time? Now that he is president, reporters assigned to Mr. Trump are in a tough position. They have to pay close attention to what the White House says, but they know the White House may give them garbage and dare them to spend an entire working day trying to verify or debunk it. Meanwhile, Mr. Trump will make the ordinary decisions any president must make, court nominations, executive orders, negotiations with foreign leaders while reporters are off trying to disprove some idiotic claim about the president's approval ratings. They'll feel as if they're in an impossible bind, trolled into looking the other way, futilely insisting on their authority as the nation's guardian of truth. So the question is, is this guy running the art of the deal on these people? Is he trolling them? Is he crazy? Is he a genius? Is he a crazy genius? I think I have to think it's entirely possible he's both. I mean, he may just be a crazy genius. All right, it just—it's just wonderful to watch. And I have to say, in terms of the effects of the effects, the things that he is actually doing, uh, it's bliss. It's bliss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, the mailbag. <laughs> it's always bliss to hear from Lindsay. All right. Uh, this was uh, put up live last week, and I didn't want to just take it off the, on the fly because I wanted to think about it for a minute. 
Dear Most Wonderful Gratuitous Benevolent Leader KLVN, because he doesn't want to put the vowels in, because then if you say the name, you turn to stone. Greetings. What is your view on the idea of predestination and the seemingly eternal battle between Calvinism versus Arminianism? Which is the, I think that's you have free will, you have free will through grace, right? That's, yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, my, my theology is always very practical because there are certain things that, you know, and this makes people crazy. I, I, I always joke, I believe very deeply in the Trinity. I think it's very important because the Trinity sets up a, a constant dance and relationship of love within the Godhead itself. But if I get to heaven and they say, you know, God is not three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He's actually five guys named Mo. It's not going to bother me because the essential truth of this dance of love, I'm convinced, will be... Uh, maintained. So the so people kill, you know, remember, people kill each other. They've burned literal human beings, just as real as you and me, have burned each other on at the stake over the question of whether the bread and wine symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus or whether it actually tra- transubstantiates into the body and blood of Jesus. They have burned living human beings, both sides, at the stake. You know, it's it's always got <laughs> a little humility when it comes to uh, when it comes to theology. So, okay, in this question, Obviously, you have free will. You know you have free will. You live in free will. Only only materialists and Calvinists tell people that they... Well, no, Calvinists actually don't say you don't have free will. They just say that you can't do anything about your salvation. You obviously have free will, and obviously, if, if God is coming to judge the quick and the dead, he can't judge... There's nothing to judge if you are not operative, operating in free will, you know? So if, if all these things are predestined... Uh, and your will has nothing to do with it, what would he judge? What would he, you know, what would there be to judge? The question is, what does it look like to God? Okay, what does that look like to God? Which is the, the thing that all these guys have gotten fouled up through history. This is the thing that they have been debating. And the answer, as far as I'm concerned, is none of your damn business. You know, haven't you got enough to do trying to learn to love God and love your neighbor without worrying what, what about God's business? But in fact, you know, the, uh, C.S. Lewis has put forward a very brilliant kind of thesis which is that God sees all time at the same time, so it's entirely possible for your life to have already been lived out and decided, even though at on your level you're still living it out and deciding. It really is a question between how God sees things and how you see them. It's the the other side of this is is actually in the gospel and very important, which is the the parable of the talents, where uh, a a uh, rich man gives three servants talents of silver. And he gives each one a different amount. And the one who has the most makes invests and makes the most money and gets praised. The one who has the second most inve- invests that and makes the second most money and gets praised. The one who gets the least, who only gets one talent, buries it in the ground. So it doesn't make any interest. And he returns it safely, but the, the rich man is furious and he condemns him. And this is where we get the word talent, because when, you know, the talent was a measure of silver. And when preachers would preach about this, they would say, well, you may not have silver, but you may be able to sing. You may be able to write. You may be able to dance. So that's your talent. You know, and that's where we get the word talent. And at the end of this, Jesus says, to him who has, even more will be given. To him who has not, even what he has shall be taken away. And this also fits in with Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice. And when the authorities come to him and say, why don't you just tell us whether you're the Messiah or not? He says, I have, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. You're not part of my flock. So there is this sense in in the gospels that some people are given a skill a talent a greater talent for hearing the word for believing 
And we know this. We see people. They have a predilection for faith. They have a predilection for the mystic, for seeing the spiritual world, and they use that. But clearly, this guy with one talent had a choice. He had a choice, and he made the wrong choice, you know. So I think that that choice still exists, even though some people have more skill, have more spiritual skill than others. The most important thing is you have free will. God will judge the choices that you make. He will judge those choices that you make. What it looks like to him, you know, you, you'll get a chance to ask him, believe me. Uh, <laughs> all, right. all right. Dear Quackamus Maximus Clayton. <laughs> Okay, this is from Mark Mallon. My wife and I want to have kids, but today's political, cultural, and educational climate has nearly scared us out of it. We're apprehensive about bringing kids up in a society where the main core value is denial of truth and reality. It's, it's more than, yeah, it's more than that. It's the, the denial of truth and reality is a virtue. I believe God is in control, but it's still frightening. What are your thoughts on the prospect of rearing children in today's society? Have children. If you love your wife, if you're, if you're happy in your marriage and you're going to stay together, have children. Have a lot of children. We need them then we need your children rather than other people's children. Um, look, the, the big problem is the school system, and the school system has become polluted with uh, left-wing nuttery. Uh, it may, you may have to solve, you're going to have to solve that problem. You solve it by moving to the right neighborhood. You solve it with homeschooling. You solve it by making enough money to send your kids to the private schools you want them to go to, religious schools, whatever you have to do. But children have an absolute value. They will change your life. They will change the world, the life of the world. Uh, to be afraid to not have children out of fear is is insane. I mean, that's that's if you're not going to have children out of fear, you're not going to do anything out of fear because the world is a frightening place. Um, so have your kids, uh, name them after me for for this uh, <laughs> name, just, or you can just name them Quackamus. I think I like I like that. All right. um, Dear General Baldus Clavidius, you guys are getting out of control. Hey, <laughs> let's, let's have some respect. I remember a show in which you spoke about an article expounding on the apparent design in nature. Atheists counter this generally with the multiverse, an unintelligent, infinite expanse of matter and energy, perpetually spewing matter and energy. What are your thoughts on this theory? Is it more probable than God? God bless J.D.? Uh, you know, there used to be this idea, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, and there used to be this idea of God of the gaps. This was as science began to fill out the explanations that used to be explained by God. Well, God makes the planets turn, and now we see, oh, yeah, it's a bend in space and gravity, blah, 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 blah. That, that God was retreating into the things that science couldn't explain, and ultimately science would be able to explain everything, and God would be gone. Uh, that's turned out to be false. Uh, you know, it was a guess. Uh, it was a respectable guess in its time, but now it's turned out to be false. And so what we have now is science of the gaps. Now that it seems very clear that the world is somehow, you know, we can't quite, remember, the world can look random to us and not random from a higher level, just like an ant's life looks random. You know, it looks random to an ant when we spray raid on it to get it out of his house, but it looks perfectly natural to us. You know, the world can look random to us and not be random. And now it does seem that the world is perfectly tuned to the human mind. The fact that a universe would create a mind that could understand the universe, the odds against that happening are astronomic, okay? So scientists say, well, maybe there are infinite universes, and this just happens to be the universe in which that happened, which I always compare to a guy playing poker, and he draws five, you know, straight flushes in a row, and Black Bart across the table kicks over the table and draws his gun, and the guy says, wait, there are infinite number of poker games, and this just happens to be the one in which I drew five straight. It, it's, an, it's a silly idea that is only there to get rid of God. It's only because science 
science. Science is a certain way of seeing things and can't see what it doesn't see. It's not supposed to. It is not supposed to. Science is not supposed to see the spiritual world. It is a way of, it is a brilliant, wonderful way of dealing with the material world. And what happens to scientists is they start to think, well, since I can only, since all I have is a hammer, everything must be a nail. And so I just think that the theory of the multiverses um, is just, a, 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 you know, it would be more scientific at this point to say there's probably an intelligence controlling the universe, as some scientists have said. Even one who was a his name was Hoyle was a convinced atheist, but when he saw the what they call the anthropic principle, the fact that the universe seems to be made for the mind, he said something is going on here. He had some wonderful I can't remember the line exactly, but he said something is going on here. All right. Um, Dear Overlord Grand Moff Clavin, uh, from Michael Cole, after leaving, living overseas in England and in the good old USA, which culture handles the struggle between work and life better? Uh, that's actually a question that answers itself. I mean, England handles it better if you're English, and uh, America handles it better if you're American. Americans work harder. They are more dedicated to work. Uh, certain Americans, and now we have a, we've had a big problem with this because of left-wing policies, but, you know... Americans put more meaning into their work than most people overseas. In England, uh, around noon, everybody leaves and goes out and drinks, and the rest of the afternoon, <laughs> nothing gets done. So, you know, you, you tell me. What, you know, what do you think? I mean, I am very dedicated to my work. I love my work. It does give a lot of meaning to my life. I do have to work to bring uh, my personal life into my life and not work all the time, which I do. I work very hard to do that. Uh, but I like the American. I like, Amer I like America when it is dedicated to work uh, more. I personally like it more. Uh, you know, I could I could never go out and have lunch with people when I lived in England because if I did, I knew the rest of my day was gone because the drinking is insane. I mean, it is just insane. All right. Um, anything else? Uh, <laughs> oh, Captain Mike Clavin. I love that. That's <laughs> a little, little Walt Whitman in there. It is my mom's birthday this weekend. Oh, okay. My whole family and I love your show and listen to you every day. We dance in our kitchen to your theme song. You're basically a member of our family. I just hope you're going to include me in your will, though. If that's <laughs> Thank you for always giving us hope and big belly laughs. Could you please give a birthday shout out to Kathleen Makel? From Chico, California, Kathleen, happy birthday. It's signed, love, Darby, Molly, James, and Natalie. All right, that's the mailbag. Great questions, really interesting questions. Send them in some more for next week, and we will do it again. Stuff I like. We are doing liberals I like. And as I keep saying, all of them are dead. Uh, and that is that is one thing that is maybe necessary for me to like a liberal. But this is, it's not true. This is from a day before it really, the, the turning point is 1968. Before 1968, liberals were pro-American people who believed that we needed to liberalize certain things, you know, our treatment of black people, things that really didn't need to be liberalized, you know, and, and they wanted a, a greater welfare state and all these things. You could disagree with them, but they still loved the country. They loved the country. The people we saw marching in that Women's March, which I believe it may be the end of the left, were insane, hateful people. They hated the country. They feel that they, they were, it's all right to punch somebody if they don't like, they, they set a, a Muslim guy's car on fire, a limo driver's car on fire. It's, here's a, like a Muslim immigrant trying to get, make his way as a, you know, running a limousine service. And they set his car on fire because it was, I guess it was taking people to the, uh, the inaugural balls. I mean, this is a different liberalism. The liberalism in the old days was patriotic. It really was, even if you disagreed with it. And sometimes I did. So Myrna Loy, 
actress from the old days. I just adore her. And the reason I adore her, she was a big lib. She really handled a lot of liberal causes. I think after her career was over, she went on to do a lot more political work. I loved her because she played the perfect wife. Her career took off when she became Nora Charles from Dashiell Hammett's Thin Man in the Nick and Nora Charles story. She was insanely sexy, very sensual, and she was the perfect wife. Well, here's a scene from, I think this is after The Thin Man. I think this is the first sequel. And this old uh, miserly millionaire is trying to convince Nick Charles to take on his case for free, right? And Mrs. Charles, played by Myrna, Nora Charles, played by Myrna Loy, is being sympathetic with him as she walks him out of the room. Nothing's going to happen to you. Everything's going to be all right. You go on in. I'll send the baby upstairs, and I'll take care of Nick. Well, don't be long. I'll put the lights out. No use wasting money. Getting me in another case, huh? That old penny pincher can afford the best detective in the business. He's just trying to get one for nothing. You're abetting him. I don't know what you're talking about. No? Then what was all that business at the door? I was just picking his pocket. I haven't been married to you for nothing. Mommy. <laughs> Mommy. <laughs> so she, she's the perfect wife because she always has her husband's best interests at heart, and she's incredibly tolerant of him, though he's clearly a raging alcoholic in the movies. Uh, but at the same time, she is independent, resourceful, intelligent, and courageous, and she is just terrific. She is really, she really was a, if you ever want to see what a perfect wife looks like, Myrna Loy in the Thin Man pictures, and that's why I love her. All right, folks, uh, that was the mailbag. Love the mailbag. Always a great uh, yeah. great show, yeah. Tomorrow, last day before the Clavenless. You know, I'm getting a little less worried about the Clavenless weekend for all, <laughs> for all I know. For all I know, one day we'll just go, ha, go away for the weekend, and we'll come back, and the entire EPA will be gone. But we will be back tomorrow, so there's still a day away. Be here. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.